Welcome back, everybody, to LARPs and Tarps and to the next installment of our Barbarian series. This week, we're talking about the Thule, who are the most magical of barbarians. Um, I'm joined with uh, my co-host, Tom. Still not fired. And, <laughs> and we're also joined today with a very special guest, uh, Andy Raff from the PD team, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, hello, I'm Andy Raff. In theory, I am lead writer, but nobody will tell me what that means, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Thule, greatest mystery. Quite uh, the Thule are very much my baby. Uh, uh, they were the one I wrote, um, as opposed to the Jotun and the Druge and the Grendel, which Matt wrote most of. But yes, love the Thule. Uh, okay, so you you were you were the almost like the you the Thule were your project, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We uh, way back at the beginning, we knew we wanted four lots of orcs. We knew we were probably going to color code them. Uh, we wanted very different themes to each of the barbarians. Uh, we had an early writing team who kicked a bunch of ideas around. Um, the Jotun, I think, was sort of a, were the first one to solidify. Then I pitched the Druge back when they were called the Chocho. Uh, what? Sorry, the Chocho. Their placeholder name uh, okay. was Chocho, which is a reference to something from Call of Cthulhu. Um, ah, okay. Uh, some some terrible cultists, basically, who do awful things. Um, and then the Thule had been on my mind for a while. I pitched them and successfully got them through, did most of the writing on them. And then we had a lot of argument about what we do in the South. The Grendel, I think, were the last bunch of orcs to get nailed down uh, and the last bunch to actually enter, enter play, um, not till after the Thule had been... Uh, taken off the stage i think uh but matt matt uh, matt p did a lot of work on the grendel he's a big fan of them uh, uh oh we should have got matt on rather than, than adam oh don't take that away from adam <laughs> no no don't, don't don't get matt on don't get matt on um, well you, admittedly you were a sacrificial lamb we did email pa- uh matt p for we i just emailed generically pd and i was just like does anybody know anything about the thaw um because there's it's again the information is i, I well I feel like it's hard to... I know there's a lot of people that know the Thule, obviously, but it's just You've not people we name. know. But also it's like, it's hard to it's harder to find people that have actually fought them. Because mm. as I understand it, we haven't fought them for... Oh, no. Uh, let me think, five, six years. I think the first peace treaty uh, was only a few years in. Um, the Cask Peace Treaty, uh, which gave them Silver Peaks and I think the Stasi. Um, Matt, mostly, yeah. incidentally, threw me under the bus because I'd wow. been winding him, winding him up about the fact that he'd been invited to give a talk at LARPCon about world yeah. building, and I hadn't. Uh, so I was doing a bit, and then I did the bit <laughs> a little bit too much, it appears. So your request came in. He said, Andy, you know about the Thule. You can do this one. <laughs> Be the sacrificial lamb. In a but slightly, we're glad to yeah. have you. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I say, um, to be here. Love the Druge. Thule. Love the Thule. Don't love the Druge. Druge are bad. The, no Druge one loves the Druge. Right. Yeah. No nice Druge. The, I think the, the so I, in fact, this is probably a really good time to ask this. So we've kind of said throughout the recordings that it seems like a lot of the nation, the barbarians, as it were, were made to reflect some aspects of the different nations. Is that true? Is that, it looks like it is, but if that's the case, or is it more of a coincidence or? So uh, kind of, the Jotun obviously reflects Wintermark, um, but to a lesser degree, there's elements in that reflect the Brass Coast. Not so much the marches, but there's a but there are some elements. They're very martial races. The Druze, by contrast, are meant to be a hard counter almost to Highguard and Dawn. Oh, really? Because Highguard and Dawn are very heavy armored, um, they're not skirmishes, but they're also supposed to be an interesting counterpart to the Navarre. Uh there are jokes about the Imperial Druze um being yeah. a Navarre. Um and we play that up um in the same way the Thule in the North are very much a reflection of the Verushkins. Um And the Grendel, obviously, with their emphasis on money and wealth and espionage and stuff like that, are reflections of the Brass Coast and the League. So, yes, that was very yeah. intentional. That's good. I think that's really interesting you talk about Dawn and Highguard with the Druze, because that's. I feel like it's interesting. Yeah, I think we picked out Navarre quite easily, because everyone's terrified when we're fighting the Druze and Navarre have been on uh, manoeuvres. So, but <laughs> uh, we. Well, obviously, we, when the game started, Rykos was in the hands of the Druze. Uh, and one of the elements that was really useful from our point of view is the Druze are terrible as a nation. And that gives the High Guard somebody to be really angry at because they do awful things and they exploit the High Guards. Um, I'm not going to say they've got a pole at the backsides, 
uh, but they're stiff necked attitude to virtue. But it's been really satisfying seeing them get heavily involved in the Zenith campaign, for example. Um, I strongly yeah. suspect, just from reading some of the orders and things, that some of the highborn are still working out their uh, annoyances and frustrations from the Rikos campaign, where I took a great deal of pleasure in doing awful things to their people in Winds of War <laughs> and plot and Winds of Fortune. So, yeah, happy days. Oh, Is Andy Raff the most evil person at Empire? Yeah, I was going orchestrator of our woes. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the most evil person at PD. That is probably off the top of my head, Steve Kirkbride. Who also, incidentally, quite likes both of Thule and the Grendel. Oh, okay. yeah, there you go. So we've kind of talked about, uh, in, again, in kind of previous previous episodes, we've talked about what the Thule are like, well, sorry, what the barbarians are like to fight, because I think that's the the most, I think, I feel like that is the shallowest point that people interact with the barbarians. So it's like the most common ground. People are like, oh, well, I've, if you never get yourself involved in the plot beyond that, it's like, well, I've fought the Jotun, I've fought the Druze. What were the Thule, I guess, designed to be like to fight? What's their whole shtick? I know they're a big kind of magic group. So the Thule are an odd one. Um, they suffered a little bit, I think, from being very on stage in the early years of the campaign when we were still getting our head around exactly how battlefield magic worked. So I think the early fights against the Thule suffered a little bit from the fact that we hadn't quite tweaked. We hadn't got battlefield magic working the way it should do. Yeah. And when you've got a magic emphasis people that became a bit of a problem we looked at the different ways that a fantasy world might adapt its tactics to do combat for example uh, one of the things we came up with a little late but we were just starting to implement the point when the peace treaty came in is that the thule of the, the barbarians most likely to use pikes and long weapons designed to keep people at bay while their wizards complete their rituals or or power them up uh, we looked at a few things like that. We would, uh, we've would we had a lot of discussion towards the end about how we were going to move it up. And we've had a lot of discussion since about what we'll do if they come back into play again. Uh, mm. I suspect we'll benefit from the fact that there's been a big gap between the last time the Empire faced them and now. Um, but at the end of the day, they were a little beige because we were still getting to grips with the idea of, uh, of five, six, seven, eight hundred person battles. Um, but it was all about yeah. the magic. It's all about mass weakness. That's nasty. You're fighting on the battlefield. You're just like, oh, I kind of, I kind of know my druge and my, my normal orcs coming along, and all of a sudden, some horrifying mage comes along, shatters your shield, and they're like, oh, I wasn't ready for this. And the idea of having a, a a bunch of mages that can just ruin your day very easily. I feel like the return of the fuels just could be a nuclear. Bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, the other thing they did before the Grendel made it cool was they used big monsters. Um, the yeah. war rhino uh, was the Thule. Um, they have a whole army that specialises in stupid large-scale monsters that we can ride around on battlefields. Um, the war rhino was the, I think it feels like, in my memory at least, was the Empire's first big defeat on the battlefield. Um, I've heard stories. Rampaged. I heard it was a massacre. Mm. Uh, the Battle of Icarus Tears uh, is one of, it's one of the few early battles that got a name because of the number of Wintermark that got crushed under the feet of a giant rampaging war rhino. Uh, with my mate Tom Butterworth on the back with a bandolier of potions, um, shouting and enthusing people. It's lovely. You, see, you must have seen the pictures. Yeah, yeah no, I have great. seen. It's one of those things where I'm kind of sad that I've never been able to. So the only monsters I've fought I've, is I've, I've chased after those spider heralds from E3 yeah. and then against marshlings a couple of times. But like beyond that. Oh, and um, the, the thing is I only fought with the humanoid monsters because I fought the... Um, uh, tortured souls as well yeah i got to see the ice giants that was fun. oh yeah you fought ice giants but no, you fought with ice fought, giants. Oh, of course the other group that do the big monsters obviously are the grendel uh with their drakes and their land sharks oh uh, we really want to see the drake we saw a picture of the drake i was like because they took i think it was adam told us that the yeah. march at egregore got ate by a drake i was like i'm sorry i, I can't even begin to conceptualize <laughs> what uh, that would look like uh, so Speak bill first, thomas apparently. built effectively um a giant sock puppet, a massive sock puppet of a snake. And we had a battle where they were, they had this massive Drake thing that was big enough that you could feed people into it. And uh, I think it was Rich Keeling, uh, the March of Agricor at the time, got eaten by it. That sounds beautiful. Yes. You, you had to feed people to it manually because it wasn't <laughs> going anywhere. Uh, but yeah, so it was a giant snake's head. Um, yeah, it was one of our, it was one of our last big cool monsters. Um, but, uh, with the Grendel also having a peace treaty with the Empire at the moment, we haven't really had an opportunity to field much in the way of big monsters. Why you're fighting marshlings 
because uh, they work reasonably well with the Druge. And the Jotun tend to focus more on heralds rather than big monsters. Yeah, I've seen quite a few heralds because we fought alongside uh, high arc heralds. Um, and you always hear rumors of the horrifying things that you can do whilst you're fighting next to them. But I suspect the prelude to any re- resumption of hostilities with the Thul is likely to be a barrage of territory level destructive magic across the entire north. We've threatened that. We're not, sorry, the Thul don't threaten. We've mentioned several times <laughs> that. While the Empire has been busy fighting between two and three other Orc nations uh, over the last five or six years, the Thule haven't. Yeah, They've been just quietly accumulating mana crystals, yep. many of which they buy from the Empire. Um, Good. Uh, We're our own worst enemies. <laughs> uh, yes. But the Thule are like that. They, they, are, they are upfront-ish, uh, while at the same time being a bit sinister. Um, yeah. I, I play or have played uh, Rack, who speaks for the Dragons Undivided, which is the Thule ambassador. Um, he's not been on the field much because the Empire's been had a more military alliance with the Thule for the last few years. Mm. Uh, so we've been sending uh, generals to speak to the Empire rather than diplomats. But it'll be interesting no, to see whether that changes now that the, the Thule aren't fighting alongside the Empire at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to kind of follow them. And there's this kind of, we were talking to someone else who was saying how explaining to us how like um land capture works and how that a lot of the Thul were given the like small territories they own are in a pretty good position to steamroll if we ever started anything uh the your problem is beachheads um normally if a territory belongs entirely to your enemy you need more victory points you need a bigger force to get that first region but if they have already got a region they get around that they can just rampage straight in um, it also doesn't help, for example, that they've built a whole load of fortresses in those regions. We we mentioned them as they go up, and that will make it hard to get them back again. Um, it just feels like again, it's like it's really funny having this conversation with barbarians that we're not fighting with. Just watching it in the corner, and everyone just seems to be looking, going, "Oh, is it too late to deal with that?" Not dealing with it, and then looking at it bigger and go, "Oh, it's really getting too late to deal with now." <laughs> Let's just whitewash all that area. It'll be a write-off. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, the Thule and the Grendel are very similar in one regard, in that they are both they're both political PvP nations. The mm. the Jotun and the Druge are much more uh, are much more about fighting. Basically, the Druge are cunning and subtle and untrustworthy, but they don't they don't plot complicated stratagems with both the Grendel, uh, who are regularly described uh, backstage as dicks. Is their main uh, <laughs> is their main <laughs> characteristic. Um, the Grendel and the Thule are both. Uh, we play them like PCs more so to some degree than we do like the Open of the Druge because their their basic brief leaves a lot more space for it. So the Grendel, as you'll have seen over the last year particularly, are all a little bit cutthroat PvP. Their knives are mostly pointed outwards, but occasionally they're pointed inwards if one of them thinks they can yeah. get ahead. They're this big veneer of civility about them, but they're clearly plotting against one another and think and get away with it. Whereas the Thule, by contrast, have five immortal horrors who take a very long view um, and direct all of their policy. So they are much more unified, which makes them more dangerous, but also means that they move more slowly. That's quite intention. So I suppose we're talking about the military matters. What's the fuel like as a general society? Yeah. What, what are those five horrors that you just mentioned? So <laughs> the horrific. dragons, the dragons. I'm pretty confident I've named them. Yes. Uh, Spear of the Stars, uh, Wind of Fortune names them up. There are five dragons. Uh, mostly that was an in-joke that got out of hand because it's quite hard for us to put a dragon on the field. But having a bunch of probably orcs who are referred to as dragons as a title uh, allows me to kick that around, and it immediately helped with a lot of the iconography of the Thule. But the Thule are run by five dragons who are allegedly immortal, living ancestors, godlike uh, creatures who've been around for a thousand years or more, uh, and they are at the top of the pyramid. Underneath them are the warlocks, who is anybody with magical ability, and underneath them is everybody else. Um, oh, so and their cool. society is very stratified, very slow-moving, and very defensive as well they have a strong drive to to move cautiously because potentially arguably they claim their leaders will live forever so it makes more sense for them to to advance slowly rather than take risks 
Uh, so they're the barbarian nation that are most likely to play the longest game rather than short victories. Oh, absolutely. Of the four of them. Um, and it's what makes them interesting. And we've, again, I think we've been upfront in our diplomacy saying essentially we plan to stay at peace with the empire for as long as it is in our interests to stay at peace with the empire. As long as we will benefit more from peace, we won't move to war. Uh, but at the point where you make it more appealing for us to reach our goals by going to war, we'll we'll wait for the treaty to run out and declare war. Yeah. Why do I feel like it's the fuel that's going to be the event that ends Empire as a game? <laughs> it, it, it's tricky. I genuinely don't know where we're going. I know Wintermark was very angry about the fact the Empire gave the Silver Peaks to the fuel way back mm. in, oh, I want to say, 78. Let me just check. Yeah, 79, in 379, which is five years ago, I think, five years of game time, Yeah. Um, the Empire signed its peace treaty and gave them the Silver Peaks and I think one of the cast regions. Um, and the Wintermark were very angry. We ran the whole plotline with Dogley Thulbane, uh, who was the who was a Wintermark NPC in Scarsin, who basically said, it's outrageous that we've given them the Silver Peaks. Um I'm going to get a load of warbands together and go and attack them who wants in. Uh, there was a whole thing about that. And the Empire stopped it, uh, which was interesting. Again, they sent the Iron Helms in in their first actual fight to tell Dogby, rest Dogby Thilbane. And he was ultimately uh, executed the, the long way around. But so, uh, and we know that Varushka has been very divided in its attitude to the Thule. Some of the Varushkans seem to like the fact that the Thule do a charm offensive against them regularly. And some of them are really knocked about the fact that because of their positioning, it's their land that the Empire keeps giving to the Thule to buy their uh, buy their friendship. So that's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, because from memory, so for me, the big political things I've been aware of with the Thule have been that, uh, was it the Thule that released a bunch of slaves recently? Or said they're going to end slavery? Or so um, we... We had a little bit of plot in which a common theme in negotiations with the Thule was was uh, repatriate so many uh, imperial captives. Uh, and then at the climax of the Surma Suak campaign, uh, just shortly after, it's so the last event, in fact, uh, the Thule announced that the dragons had decreed an end to slavery. I think, again, we made it pretty clear that a lot of what that was about was the fact that it was just making it costly to deal with the empire because of sanctions uh, and the Liberty Pact. And that ultimately, them gets them stopping slavery doesn't make them good. Uh, all those former slaves still have to work in the mines, or else they starve to death. Yeah, still not, the, yeah. still not a pleasant time. No, no, they're still at the bottom of the indentured uh, servant. The, yes, quite. Um, they're still at the bottom of the pole um, and poor, uh, and the dragons are still at the top. But yes, we did that. We've been yeah, we've been doing a few um, steps like that around it as we try and move some of the emphasis in the campaign away from uh, slavery as a theme. So it's a bit played out. Hmm? Is there a kind of a spark notes history of what life with the Thule has been like since Britta died? So I can't remember. I don't actually know who we were at war with when Britta died. Um, oh, right. Uh, so when Britta died, um, let me think. The Lost Territories, uh, every nation except Dawn had a territory that was in the hands of the barbarians. Um the Thule had Scar, Sind, and Cask. Uh, the Jotun had Mornwald and Segura. Oh, technically that was the Lysambrian Orcs, if I remember correctly. Um, the League had lost Holberg to the Druge, and Rykos had lost, were, was lost from Highgard. And the Navarre have, uh, I think it was Leathaven, was in Jotun hands. So that, uh, that's so at the beginning. The- that's how the game started with most nations yeah, like not yeah. having land, I guess. Yeah. With most nations having having a territory either mm. missing. Dawn was the exception, but Dawn was written to to want the barons. They had an ambition. They had the big theme early on. They were the only nation who'd never lost territory to the barbarians. Um yeah. uh, but the barons was was pretty clearly put down as a and they have ambitions to conquer the barons, which is this massive territory full of riches that nobody has ever quite conquered for any long period of time. Um, we'll so at the beginning game. of the game, we'll do it. We'll get we'll get it back. <laughs> uh, and I think Spiral Spiral was in the hand of the Grendel, um, but we didn't have a strong we didn't have a strong grasp on the Grendel until later on. So it was pretty quiescent. Uh, not a lot was going on there, and that started to kick in around the time the Thule were falling back um, after the Thule peace treaty. The Grendel started to kick up a bit, and we 
I mean, we initially didn't have any rules for navies, which was another reason the uh, the Grendel weren't particularly active. Um, but then we had a well, then we spent a winter writing navy rules, and suddenly the Grendel were everywhere, which was great. Um, but that was who at the beginning of the campaign, the Empire was effectively actively at war with the Yeoman, the Druid, and the Thule. Okay, so it was everyone except the Grendel, basically. Everyone except the Grendel. The Grendel were there, but they weren't particularly active. Um, and the Empire just left them to it because it was Spiral. Nobody likes Spiral. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, it's, it's, remind me, my, my Imperial geography is still terrible. Mm. So Spiral's Urizeni, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, it was. It's Grendel again now at the minute. Uh, it has changed oh, hands, yes. I think, more than any other territory with the possible exception of Leathaven, which I don't think has ever really been anybody's hands for more than about six months. Uh, but Spiral is the place with the uh, with the giant black plateau. Yeah, I was going to say it's the place of the black plateau, isn't it? Yeah, which is a, just a generally kind of upsetting place. It's like we kind of want it back, Cerritans, but it's horrifying. Maybe we should just cut our losses and leave it. <laughs> There's quite a nice mithril mine in it, uh, but on the far oh. side of the territory, so it's a pain in the backside to keep hold of. I like Spiral. I like the fact the players did it. Really? Yeah, yeah. The black plateau because the black plateau appears to respond to violence and bad thoughts and stuff. And as the fighting sort of went backwards and forwards in the last big effort to conquer Spiral, um, the Rakuto started to rouse, started to wake up a little bit. Um, and then and then the player, one of the armies took an order in Spiral designed to that spreads fear and terror and horror. And the Black Plateau kind of woke up. And then they did it again. And then the Black Plateau sort of went nuclear. Um, oh no. <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm really pleased with it. I'm really pleased with it. I think it was a, it was an excellent feedback loop. We warned players it was going to happen, and the players did it anyway. And now we have consequences. It yeah, and it happened, and it was good. It was a lot of fun to write up. You put a big red button in front of a player saying "Do not press." They're going to press that button. I suspect some people may have suspected that the Grendel, who kept saying, "Should we have a season off? Should we not fight for a season so the Black Plateau can calm down again?" Were up to something. Oh. It would make sense. I get. I kind of get that logic. Uh, mm. So every time we've talked about the other barbarian nations, we've talked about the look. How do the fuel uh, look then aesthetically? Yeah. Oh, uh, blue, dark blue hoods are the are the absolute baseline. Um, they uh, and dragon iconography. All of the all of the Thule NPCs that we get on the field at any rate, and the generals and the high ranking people. They have these lovely. Um, these lovely big pectoral things with a five-headed dragon uh, on the thing. I was going to actually try and find one, but I've no idea where I've put mine. I suspect I've lent it to somebody to use as a monster at the last event. Um, and, and that is the theme, black with hoods. They've got a bit of a wizardy feel to them. Uh, blue with hoods, sorry. They've got a bit of a wizardy feel to them, um, and they use dragon iconography. Um, and Wintermark runes are quite popular with them as well, but they, instead of having that kind of neat slash look that the wintermark runes had um they'll often decorate them up um the actual full page on the wiki uh the illustrations on it are all wintermark runes but you don't necessarily well most of them are wintermark runes but you don't necessarily spot that because they look like they are kind of uh pseudo celtic kind of dragon icelandic things so that is the the fool's look and feel it's not as well defined as Jotun, Druge and grendel because they've not been active uh, yeah, but yeah, but even the warriors are uh, dark blues and hoods where we can. So when they eventually do come back to wreck us all, uh, they'll be very well thought out and designed, and we'll all be terrified. <laughs> we've done a we've done a lot of work since. Um, we're not prioritising them at the moment because they rarely show up as adversaries. They do occasionally. Um, mm. We have had skirmishes and things where the where the fool have asked the empire to intercede. They've shown up as opposition on a couple of player events that I'm aware of. Um, but there again, the problem is always that they show up as adversaries who you're not really meant to murder, uh, which makes them more complicated because they're still orcs who are trying to steal your... Uh, there was a whole thing a few years ago in which the Phil were cheerfully uh, raiding archaeological sites, but in a polite way. Uh, and uh, pe <laughs> oh, people no, have to have a British. bit of a... <laughs> It's the British Empire. <laughs> uh, absolutely, they they were digging things up and taking them back north until some people said, "Basically, can you stop that, please? Uh, your right to wander around the empire does not involve carrying spades." Uh, <laughs> they're just they're just like no, you can't have it back. I haven't finished looking at it yet. We're going to <laughs> take these things away. Uh, uh, pushing it is definitely a, a thing with the thule. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a there was a recent plotline about a uh, an Orichalcum mine, for example. 
that it wasn't entirely clear which territory it was in. Um, oh, okay. And so the field said, it's ours. You've got to stay out of it. And the Varushkin said, no, it's ours. You've got to stay out of it. And that became a whole political hot potato, uh, which, again, was a lot of fun to run plot with. As the Thule are saying, well, it's ours, clearly, because uh, we are in it. Um, <laughs> so we're almost in a cold war with the fuel, effectively. Cold war is very much the theme. Um, they are they're friendly, but they have an ulterior motive. Um, I think the nation that is most, but perhaps most uh, uncertain about them is the Imperial Orcs, who they keep being nice to. Uh, and, and the Imperials have not responded well to the Thule being nice to them, uh, not in any way, shape or form. But it's been very funny from a backstage point of view to watch as, as various plots run into a brick wall of, uh, of Imperial Orcs with arms folded saying, no, thank you very much. We do not want your delicious jam. Go away. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So Cold War is a, is a good phrase. Um, it's a bit tangential. The um, But you mentioned that, so I'm really interested in this, specifically also because of a recent Winds of War that you refer to the runes as Wintermark runes. Um, where it, I don't actually know a good deal about that. So the fact that, did the Thule take them from Wintermark? Do they have a shared origin or is it not known, I guess? Yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's fine. That's kind of the response I was anticipating. <laughs> uh, so so what we do, what, you, what what is reasonably common knowledge is Wintermark uses the runes and the Empire calls them Wintermark runes. Um, oh, yeah. The, the Jotun, who are also up in that corner, make a great deal of use of the runes as well and claim they invented them. Um, and the Thule, who are kind of up in that area, make a lot of use of them uh, and also claim that they invented them. Mm. Uh, but the runes are used all over the place. Um, even some foreign nations use something that is identifiably the runes. Uh, they don't necessarily call them the same things or, or you draw them with exactly the same design. But there is some sort of shared origin to the runes. Uh, and everybody claims they invented them. Um, yeah, okay. So it's just more, it's more a case of that winter might use them. Yeah, just because, because yeah. again, active plot, so can't tell as much. But the um, the reading the Winds of War for the uh, the thing in um, Teruniel where they found the um, uh, this Ruins. kind of thing with Wintermark runes, I was like, "Them in Wintermark? Were there? What's going on?" But now I understand it's maybe just a yeah. yeah we call them the Wintermark runes because calling them their actual name would give a lot away. Um, <laughs> oh, a little bit of sizzle <laughs> there from Andy Raff. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, and because Wintermark are the people who, in play, among the player base, Wintermark are the player, are people who use them most and probably invented them. Yeah, cool, sure, absolutely. Although if they did, that doesn't explain why they are in a uh, a thousand year old building in the middle of a forest overrun by the Valor. But I'm sure it all makes sense if you. Uh... Yeah, I'm sure it all come together in the end. Got lost, man. Oh. I'm not saying this is why I I write for Empire or uh, anything, but I love the. Uh, I love messing around with the mysteries and dropping stuff in. Yeah. Do you write with a cat like a James Bond villain? It's like, oh, this is going to drive the player base crazy. No, the, the thing is, with that particular thing, I really should stop. Uh, the thing with that particular thing is, I think that there are players who will be able to make some informed guesses about what is going on there. Ah, and I would love to know if they do so. Because one of the things about a game the size of Empire um, is there's a lot of information that's gone out over the last uh, mm. over the course of the game. Um, some of which it ties into some long-running mysteries. Um, and you can put the pieces together um, and come up with some theories that are quite close to what is actually going on. But the joy of that is uh, you can also put that information together and come up with some theories that are absolutely crazy um, and have no resemblance to what we've done. I've seen that happen in the field in real time. Uh, thanks to the signs importance ritual, where somebody conflated two visions that had nothing to do with each other, oh, um, and convinced a whole room full of people that this was a sign that the Thule were doing something bad. I forget what it was, but it wasn't one of the bad things they were actually doing. <laughs> no, I think I love that about the sheer scale. So we were talking about, um, I've been talking about people about they're kind of like the game they're involved in. It's like working with nations that are slavers and stuff. And it's like the thing is, you associate with slavers, it's impossible to convey to people that you're not actually pro-slavery uh, and that's you know really difficult to deal with i'm like but yeah but that would be what it would like if this was real trying to convince the entire nation it's like yes i know i deal with this like the fact that this this kind of game is so massive and room the rumor mill is so mm -hmm. insane that it's impossible to kind of like get a message across sensibly but yeah no it's phenomenal how much has kind of gone on and i, I am really excited to see more i guess from the fool I'm hoping to see, I'm dreading seeing the fuel because we're not going to be prepared for them, I'd like but to, I can't wait to I'd, play against them. I would love to fight. This is the thing. So I'd love to fight with someone that wasn't the Jotun. Uh, but the thing is at the minute is that, so I'm in Dawn, 
So every right. time there's every time it's either Druze or Jotun, it seems like we're like, well, we'll fight the Druze, which again, I'm all for. I want to fight the Druze. But I'm always like, I'd love to fight as not the Jotun. No, <laughs> like I to shake it up a little bit. Being the league at the moment, we've fought. Then again, we're the mercenary companies, but I'm with the block. So mm. yeah, we're always fighting as the Jotun. Yeah. So I think the Grendel Peace Treaty is coming up for renew a review <laughs> at yeah. event two this year is when it is due yeah. to be renegotiated and i think it runs out at summer it's either summer or autumn out oh, the autumn yeah 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 i'm just checking the the wiki notes uh yes so i think it runs out in autumn but it's due to be renegotiated in spring so it's possible you'll get to play as the Grendel next <laughs> year unless they just Possibly. start because because we spoke about last week and it was like lizabetta just used to pay them 500 thrones to bugger off basically every year there um, was certainly a period where they extorted uh, money from the empire by saying, "Give us this much money, and we won't invade you this season." Um, yeah. Because the Grendel are dicks. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I really hope the peace treaty fails because I really want to play as a Grendel out of all the barbarian nations. I think the Grendel are my favorite. I want, I want the cushy job of whoever got to play that orc NPC who sat in a palaquin waiting for a Dornish yo folk to come along to negotiate the release of Dornish hostages. That sounded amazing. That's like, that sounds like the best day uh, monster yes. I can imagine. Uh, yes, that, I think that was. Uh, I think that was Nick. Uh, who had a whale of a time uh, in a in a what do you call him a zentai suit um, with a load of jewelry and and very little costume hanging off him uh, and doing his impression of Xerxes from, uh, that's, from that's 300. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that was a that's a great like, sequence that I've heard a lot of good things about. I definitely feel like the Grendel are like mega mind for you have to be a super villain with presentation <laughs> the, the, the question we often ask when we're doing the Grendel is what would the players do if the if the Grendel were played we, we use that as a, as a technique backstage particularly when we're working on things like Barbarian Auras what would we do if we were players what would the what would a player event which everybody plays through would look like and then we use that to, to make our decisions but the Grendel it's always what would PCs do in this situation they would be cocky and overconfident and unprincipled uh, and as soon as you make that connection, the Grendel can do anything they fancy. Uh, I'm joking <laughs> mostly, but but we're thinking, but we think of very different groups of PCs for different nations. Um, but with the Grendel, it's very much what would a bunch of players do in this situation? And we sometimes have to rein Matt in, particularly. Uh, oh, really? In a sort of that 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 is cool and funny and everything, but it's a little bit too meta. I have a question. So I was thinking. So we we often talk about. It's often noted that. Uh, uh, the Empire are potentially not the best guys uh, when it comes to the world stage. No. And I was wondering if that is something that has been driven by players or that was kind of baked into the system. Like, is it kind of like there were 375 years of of the Empire being an enlightened group of people? It was utopian. And then the players touched it and it fell apart. So uh, an early job we did um, was we looked at history. We decided early on that we wanted a... Uh, a, what do you call it, a manageable period of history. It's why the empire is less than 400 years old. Because in a fantasy setting, it's always these thousand-year-old empires. And that is just yeah. too much of a way of history. So yeah. we we broke it down a little bit. We worked out roughly how many thrones would be about right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we wrote a chunk of history. And what we did with the thrones as we went along is we had a little bit of a team. Some of us took more than others. We, we'd come up with ideas and concepts. And wherever possible, we tried to demonstrate something about the game um, and act as if they were PCs. So the Empire, through its history, has, has, uh, has moved backwards and forwards across the alignment scale several times. Um, you've had good, you've had good uh, rulers, you've had bad rulers, you've had rulers who've thrown... I think Emperor James throws at least one of the foreign ambassadors down some stairs and tells them to get out of his galaxy kind of thing because he's conniving with people. Uh, Empress Barcula rules with an iron fist uh, and people are in fear of her, apart from the common people who think she's great. Uh, and then you compare that with Empress Rashild, who is throwing massive tourneys and being a very King arthur -y kind of figure. Uh, and as you get closer to the current day, everything gets a little bit more low fantasy, and a little bit more political. But when the game starts, we set it up with you have just had a firebrand young empress who has rallied people enthused about the future of the empire. And then we left the players to get on with it. So the empire's um, reputation on the world stage has broadly, with the exception of the Sumar, who started off 
quite negative towards the empire because they share the same faith and believe the same things. Um, we left it up to the players to define what their situation would be. And through their actions, some people think they're, yeah, they're not trustworthy. The Yeltsin have been on a, on one for years now because uh, every time things start to get slightly better, somebody will I don't know, poison 5,000 of their people or something. Uh, or break a peace <laughs> treaty, or, or push an old lady down some stairs in front of them. Um, whereas the Druze, by contrast, initially started off by thinking the Empire were a bunch of weaklings, and then various people did terrible things, and the Druze started saying, uh, started being much more positive about the Empire. Um, <laughs> That's not a good sign. I, I, I'm mostly joking, but certainly with the with the relationships with the foreigners, we started off with everybody reasonably neutral, and it has been the actions of player characters that have shaped uh, how the politics of the game has gone. Oh, that's uh, the sign of a great game, in my opinion. Yeah. Letting the players have so much control over the world. To, to just burn down their own house. Or fix it. <laughs> it's tricky, because obviously it's easier to have make things go badly than it is to make things go good. Mm. Um, and we have to remind ourselves from time to time that intentionally the Empire is made up of lots of different factions, lots of different uh, power blocks and power groups with very different agendas, whereas we have the luxury as the foreigners of usually being quite a, quite a unified um, yeah. group. And so we'll. Uh, it's not always the case, but we have to remind ourselves occasionally that one of the reasons sometimes the Empire does things that don't make any sense is because you have a bunch of players all who have conflicting ambitions and goals, and that is the game that we've put together. Well, I think that's really interesting. I think a microcosm of that is the barons, right? So, like mm -hmm. the the barons, if it was again, if you were just one unified empire, just kind of it was like, all oh, right, we'll take the barons as a group. Cool, we've got it. There we are. But because we've got ten different people with at least like three or four people being like, maybe we should have it. The whole thing's just kind of is a lot harder because you can't just be like, we are the empire. We are going to try and take the barons. I guess you can have it. <laughs> well, the, the barons is interesting. Um... When you compare it to, to to Holberg, for example, which was, I don't think there was ever any doubt that that was going to be taken by the league, um, even though Dawn had a bit of a claim on it because of the history of that territory. But what is interesting as an outsider is um, it feels sometimes, and this is hindsight, so I'm not sure what the player experience is, the first year that we played, the Military Council and the Senate and the Synod were working together. Uh, you had a kind of you had a unified front, uh, and part of that, I think, came from a belief that if the Empire didn't work together, it would be crushed by the Orcs. Yeah. Uh, and that first year, there were even people saying, there's no role-playing in the Military Council because we just do what's best for the Empire. Yeah. But in the second year, and then increase, even more apparently in the third year, all of that started to fall apart as people realised that actually the entire Empire is not in any danger at all. Bits of the yeah. Empire are in danger. Um, and suddenly, the, uh, and slowly over time, the competing agendas of people started to come to the fore. I think it's one of the reasons it took the Empire so long to get Urizen back, is that there were always voices who had a higher priority than that. Um, and that is the game working the way it's intended to work. Um, that it's not uh, it's not the forces of good against Sauron. It is a bunch of rivals uh, all trying to keep the Empire roughly intact so that there's nine other people in the water with them and the sharks. Yeah, no, I think that's really funny because you look at kind of um, even within, again, soft enemies, but like Dawn and the Marchers who are like literally founded by a war with each other. Um, and they're in the same kind of group. And it's like, we are fighting together, but we have deep. And then, the, then it's like, I mean, there's that meme, isn't there? Where it's like uh, the Marchers and Dawn are natural enemies, like the Marchers and the... Yoten and the marches and the marches and the <laughs> damn marches ruin the marches. I don't think any of the nations are natural friends. No, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anybody I would put as nope. There's nobody who's natural friends. Um, um, we learnt a lot from some of our earlier games, um, and we we built that in very softly. We didn't say this nation hates this nation. We with the marches and dawn, for example, we don't say the marches and dawn don't like each other. We gave a couple of examples of why the marches and dawn might not get along, and left it to the players. And they've often run with it. There is a the march of dawn rivalry isn't a we are rivals because the brief tells us we have to be rivals. I think it's a rivalry because the players play differently and have different agendas and realise mm. that each other are uh, are after different things. Yeah. Every, yeah. Every every event that somebody focuses on the barons, they're not focusing on Bravesland. 
if I might go and ask another question about the fuel, mm-hmm. please. Since yeah, bring, us, bring us back on bring track. Us back. <laughs> since since you are effectively fuel daddy, has there been a situation? <laughs> I'll let Morgan finish. I'm not sure it's how I feel about situ- being called Fool Daddy, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I might workshop that around some friends I could do with a new nickname. <laughs> Beautiful. Is there a particular moment in the history of the Fuel that you're particularly proud of? That you sit there on your porch feeling, I did good, or the Empire players did good? The Empire did some really good good stuff early on. Um, we had a character in Cask. Um, I don't know how, how common knowledge they were, but the Charnel Lord was a Varushkin sovereign who was initially working with the Thule. And thanks to player action, they got they got it to flip sides. It's basically like Dracula was working with the bad guys, but the players worked on him and, and did some negotiations and diplomacy and finally had a meeting uh, with him and got him to flip sides and throw his support behind the Empire. And that was a lovely moment that I, re- I thought was really effective um, and, and pretty much came out of the blue uh, who were not prepared for it. There's a couple of other bits and bobs. Um, I've had some very fun um, meetings with the ambassador, with the uh, with the Russian ambassador Thule in the Senate building, where we just snipe at each other a lot. Uh, and that is the kind of interplay that I really enjoy. Uh, and it's made even better because I think in almost all of the meetings I've been in, there have been some angry winter markers as well. Um, and there's this, this lovely dynamic where they've been quite justifiably angry about something, uh, and the ambassador snipes at them, and the and the imperial ambassador, the Russian ambassador, has to try and stop anybody killing or cursing anybody else, and it's just so much fun. The tension there is a lot of fun, and that is something that sticks in my mind uh, quite a bit as well. Um, and I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed, to be honest, I've enjoyed the politics in which the Thule and the Empire have been manoeuvring around each other more than I did when they were at war. Um, mm. It's been a lot more fun to have that opportunity to role play with and talk to the Empire rather than just sending war riders to run them over. Yeah, no, I think that is interesting. I think, because uh, I think at its core, a lot of Empire is a very political game, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all about like the political maneuvers. And I think, a lot, like I say, I kind of I think the most shallow interaction people not I don't mean shallow in any derogatory way, but the most shallow interaction people have with the barbarians is the battlefield. It's like people are like, right, I'll come to Empire, I'll fight some orcs, stuff like that, and then I'll like you know get get ready for the battle. They'll be like into coating you. We are those shallow maybe. beat sticks. Yeah, we well, you, you maybe a little bit. Um, I can see a scenario where the Empire doesn't end up at war with the Thule again in the course of the campaign. Um, it would be hard, I strongly suspect, but I can see it happening. But I can also see a scenario where the Empire ends up at war with the Thule again and we have a an epic battle of sorcery and armies across the northern borders, which is going to be a lot of fun, I suspect. Yeah, no, that would be really good. For, I think it's, again, I think the more I talk about, I, I think the thing that's been really interesting about this series, for me at any rate, is looking at the barbarians as, I guess, the more depth that you guys gave them. So, like, again, the kind of, like... the certain... a society level, not a war front. Metaphor. Yeah, it's kind of like you're looking at, like, the... I think there's a thing on the um, Druge page, which is, like, they're not uncivilized. They're just... This is just how their war tactics. And it's, like... And I think in a similar way to a lot of the imperial nations get labeled with characteristics based on their uh, behavior on the battlefield. Um, like, people think of Dawn as, like, uh, meatheads that just run around and hit things, which... It's true. Rude. Uh, might be how Dawn operates kind of on the battlefield, like shouting and running. But then like when you actually get to the social level, it's all about like romance and love and the big dramatic story. And I think it's interesting looking at all these other things and then looking at the Thule and being like evil mages in their towers, but there's a bit more to it kind of thing. All of the, all of the barbarian nations have an at-home element to them. The Empire doesn't get to see it very often. But for example, we, we have a lot more worked out about how the Druze operate at home uh, that I think any imperial will ever see, basically, because they will only really ever encounter the uh, the Druze as as baddies. Um, yeah. So they have a bit more motivation. It's not it's not a lot more motivation, but they do have more motivation than just being people with "I'm evil" written on their t shirts. Uh, and that is the same with with all of the barbarians. We want them. To, we want you to believe them. See what I mean? To, not yeah. in as much detail as we do with the um, with the imperial nations, but certainly at least as much detail as. Um, 
as there is about the foreign nations. Um, yeah, I really now want to see sanctioned player events where you play as, like, in a small group as members of the barbarian societies for a weekend. So you're a fuel slave or indentured servant to the fuel world, just for a little glimpse at it. It's funny you should say that. We posited before um, uh, before COVID, we, I was, we were moving towards a possibility of running a player event in which is set in a historical time period and everybody plays the open. Um, just that. because we thought that might be quite fun. And if we said it historically, uh, the decisions there wouldn't need to have a big impact on the game. It never really came to anything because we had two years of lockdown. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not impossible that we might revisit that idea again. I'd be a little cautious about players doing it, but plot writers, um, I would be, uh, I'd be <laughs> perfectly happy to run that kind of event in a sort of... I, for one, would be buying a ticket. I wouldn't cast people as slaves necessarily. It would all have to be people with a with with agency otherwise it's it's a bit dull um, yeah unless you were an so, assassin disguised as a slave of course i suppose Ooh. tom you just spent the whole weekend digging a salt mine how do you feel <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> I, I was gonna say what you talk about like the at home behavior and i guess i don't you know, give us stuff you can't give away but what's at home for the what's like you know john q thule doing mm. on the weekend kind of thing obviously we like you say Everyone that's not a warlock has not got very much going on, but his laundry. We 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 touch a little bit on it in the write up of um of the Okgadov territory the Empire knows about the Thandi. We touch on it a little bit. There are septs, which is the word we're using because it's less uh, loaded than tribe. There are septs of orcs, and for the most part, they're left to get on with their own devices as long as they remember to respect the dragons and do what the uh, what the fool tell them, to, uh, so what the warlocks tell them. So there's uh, there's hunters and farmers and miners and what have you um, who live at the bottom level of the pyramid and mostly just get on with their lives. They probably have big families. Um, they probably aren't wealthy, but they're doing the same thing everybody else is doing. They've got music and they've got stories. Um, I've had some great one-on-one -on -one encounters uh, either directly or in the tent, uh, where the Thule have shared stories with the Varushkins. Um and that's uh, and that gives you an insight into their uh, into their society. It's not as uh, the majority of people aren't as technologically advanced as the Empire as a whole is, but I suspect that if you were to put a bunch of Thule uh, commoners in a room with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of Wintermark commoners, um, def certainly Suak or Calabasi, there wouldn't be that much difference between them. In terms of what they're doing, beyond their fanatical loyalty to the uh, the possibly immortal god dragons, I'm really intrigued by the possibly immortal, particularly the, the possibly immortal draconic. The fool think they are so blow all the money you've saved up for a site and just buy one giant dragon. Oh. <laughs> they're probably orcs, though. Uh, oh. It would be, but I say that the orcs certainly talk about them as if they're orcs. They, I think we talk about them as living ancestors a lot. And they occasionally pop up in, uh, I think a couple of them have been on the field uh, one way or another, either directly in a, in an encounter tent encounter or uh, via a hollow. Right, we've got to get to one of these encounter tent encounters. Yeah, sound no, amazing. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of hearing about them and not being involved. I've heard about a really cool Irahara encounter in a market under a table. I've seen the pictures of the frost, the frozen ship. I need to get in this down encounter tent. We, I admit, I wish we had the resources to do more of them. They're a lot of fun to write. We've got a brilliant team who puts them together. The ship was, was just so good. I don't often get to actually be in the in those encounters, but um, but, but Jesse makes a point of coming and getting us when there's something really cool. Uh, there was a lovely one last event in which they put two of the garage tents together and built a marketplace with stalls, and then got a load of volunteers from the skirmish team. It must have been about thirty people inside just being ambient npcs oh. uh, and we ran three or four encounters through that and it was just amazing um just just the way they make these things come to life they're so good i shouldn't be frothing about them given you've you've not managed to be in one i'm just making it worse well, but yeah if, they're just right if you can uh write a story for an encounter tent aimed at a Dornish changeling who specifically thinks the only reason Navarre haven't got rid of the the Valorn is because he hasn't been there and his <laughs> leaguist friend who until recently didn't believe in them. That would be great. That would be perfect. <laughs> Just package it and send it my way. I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> the, most, the most obvious encounter tense stuff that is designed to try and be open to people is the Planet Potentiary stuff. 
the art mage's power to arrange a meeting with an eternal yeah yeah um, i've 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 been especially since the the grand adventure i've been like maybe i could just say to rhinos rhinos i want an adventure <laughs> the summer art mage certainly has the power to uh to say i've got a dornish person here who wants an adventure i want to arrange planet potentially so that you can give them an adventure rhinos um assuming that that gets to the top of the list of things that the summer art mage uh uh, thinks it's politically expedient. Ah, so I'm, sure that. I'm sure I can convince them. <laughs> Thinking as my character, just being like, yes, I'm definitely the most important. Put me at the top of that list. Thank you. It makes much. sense for you to change. Like. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, brilliant. I think, I think to be fair, we're running to the end of time and the battery left on my phone. So anything, <laughs> anything else you want to say bef- about the fuel before we go? Anything you feel like we forgot? Anything you want to say about the fuel before we go? Um, uh, no, no, no. I think the Empire should maintain its current stance with the Thule, uh, which is trading with them, uh, welcoming their ambassadors, allowing their merchants to move around safely, and we can all move together towards a beautiful, prosperous future uh, in which we have all of your stuff, uh, in which um, in which we are we are capable of charting a new destiny for orcs and humans and other orcs together and that's what we should definitely do and all your listeners should do that as well is andy rath the writer speaking or andy rath the uh fuel uh <laughs> ambassador i'd say isn't it i think <laughs> i think the answer to that question is yes yes uh, <laughs> no not quite it's certainly the ambassador as a as a writer, I'm enjoying writing the the political stuff involving the Northern Empire. Uh, but I'd be equally happy to see um, how it goes when the Empire goes to war. It's one of the advantages of the way we do plot an empire. I've not got a I've not got a, a preferred outcome. As long as the Thule continue to interact with the Empire, I'm happy. Um, basically. I'll still be able to play my ambassador when we're forcing you to sign a peace treaty. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And please keep on with the fantastic work. We've loved every bit of plot. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Excellent. But yeah, thank you very much for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we will see you in a field sometime soon. Bye, friends. <laughs> <laughs>